Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Greenleft Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning, listeners. You're listening to Green Left Weekly. Um, might be a bit quiet there. Um, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, in the studio today, we have myself, Jacob, um, and we also have our guest, Megan. Good um, morning, everyone. Out for today because um, Lalita is not available, unfortunately. Um, so, I guess um, we have a pretty. We have at least two. What's coming up? Um, actually, before we. Um, before we begin our program, I'd like to acknowledge that um, FreeCR today is being broadcast to you um, from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. Um, I'd like to pay our respect to elders past and present and that this always was, um, always will be Aboriginal land and that sovereignty has never been ceded. Now, I guess it's um, pretty uh, probably appropriate to go into, um, to lead into... Possibly this is one of the sort of things that has dominated the headlines recently, but it's um, probably m- many listeners have heard about, uh, you know, um, Canada Australian Party Senator Fraser Anning's maiden speech on August 14th. Um, you could probably describe it as the most rapidly racist speech um, delivered to the federal parliament for, for decades. Um, it hailed the white Australian policy, um, you know, slandered all Muslims and, you know, even called for a final solution <laughs> to the immigration issue. Mm. Um, and interesting enough, there, I think there's a, actually a number of things uh, to unpack there in terms of analysis. I mean, one of the things... One of the things I've picked up, I pick up on, um, is that the so-called final solution is that we should have a referendum around um, whether we allow people from other countries who don't speak English into our country, and um, I think the assumption there overwhelmingly is that ordinary people are, you know. The way these politicians justify, such as um, Senator Fraser Anning, justify their racism is on the basis that ordinary people think like we do. Ordinary people. Yeah, yeah. well, it's like this assumption that, you know, the majority... Well, I, I don't deny that there are probably a lot of ordinary working class people like ourselves who probably do have racism and mm. racist prejudices against um, Muslims or people of other races. But it's like, I, I guess what a point I'm going to raise is they... Um, they they provide they their cover for their overall racism is um, making this sort of assumption that most ordinary people are racist, which I don't think is categorically true at all. Yeah, the the phrase they tout out is a silent majority. So you know, yeah, it's, it's like how when Lauren Suffern um, toured um, Australia recently, she describes you know the the alt right or the right wing fascists that represented views as the silent majority because they've just been so overwhelmingly silenced by the left wing voices. <laughs> and mm. um, I think, but I think what what I think we we should be taking as this is you know the race. What is quite interesting is how quick so many politicians um, were to condemn um, 
uh, um, condemn Fraser Anning. Um, In fact, you even had you Mm. had first you had the condemnation from Malcolm Turnbull, um, which I think is a bit um, hypocritical because it's very hypocritical. Yes, because he's he he just recently on radio was supporting the whole idea that there's an African gang crisis in Melbourne. um, You know, brushing up racism against against African youth, Um, and of course his party is the one that's supporting you know offshore detention camps and so on. But their racism is subtle, you see. You know, they, their phrases was quite avert. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, but of course, what I did not expect is um, the same Pauline Hanson, who said very similar things in the Parliament. In fact, has for, um, made her career out of mm-hmm. you know um, out of ra- a ra- a racism towards Muslims and made money out of off it. Yeah. Um, has even co- has condemned. Um, um, condemned uh, Fraser Anning's speech, maiden speech. Yes, we live in interesting times when <laughs> Pauline Hans- Hanson condemns it. And I, I think the other person, uh, I mean, the other big um, one um, that um, condemned it was Andrew Bolt, who just recently wrote an op-ed complaining about the, how um, how Australia is having too much immigration, mm. including from Jewish people in a c- certain Melbourne suburb. So there's a, the hypocrisy on display is quite fascinating, I, I think. I do wonder, though, um, is it that Fraser was too... He was too overt, and what they want to do is they want to do a subtle push for racism. They want to su- uh, do a subtle push for division, and obviously they don't want an, an overt person coming out and saying these things because then perhaps that would, um, you know, that would get people to realise exactly what this is, exactly what these sorts of speeches and these sorts of um, ideas are. So, yeah. Well, yeah. I think... I mean, one way to look at it, I mean, looking at our refugee policy, um, one of the justifications, you know, the justification we don't hear for why we should um, put refugee, why we should turn back boats and why we should put refugees in detention camps isn't um, that we don't want them here. I mean, there, there's some Liberal Party more more to the right wing, far right spectrum that will make that kind of justification. You know, mm. the reason why we have to have torture camps is we don't actually don't actually want them there. But how it's kind of generally framed is refugee policy is generally framed in this sort of context of national security. Um, we need mm. to have strong borders because um, otherwise, if we had two open borders, then they could represent a national security threat. And that's actually the justification for you know why we have lots of border force regimes in. All parts of Europe. In fact, I just watched. Um, interesting enough, I watched a film at the film festival, um, which was titled "Anne Breve Normally." Um, it's an Icelandic film um, that's about um, that's set in Iceland. Um, and what struck me about that film was that the film revolves around a border force agent or a border force worker, someone who works for the border force in um, Iceland. And what what's interesting is um, Iceland still has, despite probably having a more humane system than um, Australia. Um, When refugees come here, they basically get sent to, you know, something equivalent to a hostel, a very overcrowded hostel. Mm. Um, If you're, and before they are refugees, they're held in this hostel. And at least in this hostel, they're allowed to go, they're basically allowed to interact with civilization. Mm. Um, And, but, the whole justification for that institution as it's portrayed in the film is for this kind of thing of national security. Um, we need to protect our borders. Otherwise, if we don't protect our borders, then they'll be over, uh, we'll be overcome or they could, people, refugees who come to our country could represent some kind of security threat, etc. Mm. So those are the kind of 
I mean, in the Australian context, that's actually kind of the justification that's actually put forward. And then, of course, there's the other one, which is that we need to put refugees in offshore detention camps. They can't come to Australia because if they come to Australia, then people smugglers win. <laughs> um, and therefore, we don't want it's – it's, people smuggling is illegal and people will die at sea. Um, which, but of course, more- people are dying at sea. That's the problem. That's the issue. You know, we, we're not we're not stopping this. That, yeah, yeah, and I and I think all, all this kind of you know, it's it just really shows. I mean, I think as Celeste Little kind of said on Twitter, um, you know, she basically argued that you know it's it's been a very good week for performative anti racism because you have all these politicians, you know, condemning um, uh, uh, Fraser Anning, but doing absolutely nothing to actually address the racism. And, in fact, a lot of these major politicians are actually compliant in the racism. That's it's complete and total lip service. They have been, you know, complicit in this. So, yeah. yeah. And um, I guess the last point kind of way I want to make is um, the only person that supported uh, Senator Fraser Anning's maiden speech, and just to put a bit of humour into this, um, was uh, Bob Catter, um, the Australian Party uh Cat, well, the, the one whose party is named after, uh, he his defence on um, the SBS was, oh, yeah, Senator Fraser Anning, um, you know, he, he might on on the term of using the, because the term final solution was used by the Nazis. Exactly, it has very sinister um, defence of that was that um, Senator Fraser Anning hadn't gone to university, so he wasn't actually aware <laughs> of of the use of language, and he didn't actually <laughs> meant it, it that way. Um, and then he, and then he, mm. then he made a lot of long, very long points. I mean, I didn't watch the whole speech, but there was a number of points he made here. Um, the, the, he made this sort of long, sort of really weird thing about how Australia is very anti-Semitic, which I thought was weird. Um, and then he said, and then in response to saying, "Is your party racist?" and said, uh, he didn't really say yes or no. He said, oh, we're Australians," uh. which is. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't, um, I'm not sure what that means, but it sort of just makes Take it as you will. <laughs> it just basically means implies that, yes, if we're Australian, we must, we have to be racist. Well, that's my interpretation of Cato. So it was, it was a very amusing kind of, I mean, I couldn't watch the whole thing, but it was just, yeah, it was just probably one of the funniest things I've actually seen <laughs> on SBS. Sort of, and he, uh, at this point, is the only politician who's actually defending uh, Senator Fraser Anning's maiden speech. Um, but I think... Another point, I think, an important point, I think, that needs to be made is what I find really actually quite despicable, actually, is the fact that, you know, Fraser Anning made this very controversial um, speech in Parliament. Mm. Um, and then he gets, what he gets for it is, um, well, obviously, he gets condemnation, but he gets a free media platform Everywhere. In fact, he's getting interviews with Channel 7. Uh, he's getting interviews with Channel 9. Absolutely. Uh, he stirred up all this controversy. It's this gets- whole Sky News issue again. You know, we're giving platforms to these people. And should we actually be giving platforms to these people to spout these sorts of things? And yet there's um, yet there's a contradiction in our, uh, and a, a problem when you have con- when there are controversial left-wing speakers, well, controversial speakers from the left who are saying, you know, things that would be considered provocative in... Um, in the considered by the mainstream media, like someone standing up for Palestinian rights, uh, they never get the same platform, even though their views are, are considered no. controversial in the same way that uh, um, uh, um, Senator Fraser Anning is considered controversial. So I think and there's Blair a, Cottrell and the like, and yeah. yeah, all these controversial speakers get a free platform, 
every time. And of course, um, there's a one controversial. Um, there's one person who's considered a bit controversial, quite a divisive figure from the left, who just who's actually just been recently toured in Australia. Um, Cornell West, who just came, um, who just visited, um, he was just um, visiting for a speaking tour. I did not see him get you know, mainstream appearances on Channel mm. 7 or ABC, even though he has controversial views. And he's, you know, Connor West is someone that's actually criticised from the left as well. But um, yeah. I'm a supporter of Connor West. But it's like, yes, there's that kind of hypocrisy of um, of who gets a fair hearing in the in the mainstream media. And it's just, mm. I think, quite despicable that someone like Fraser Anning just gets a, a free pass anyway. Even if he gets mm. widely condemned by the mainstream media, he gets a free pass. But we're, and- still, we're still airing him, you know. It's, it's ridiculous. Mm. Yeah. All right, um, I'm going to go play a quick first, uh, quick announcement. Um, we're going to be having our first interview. Um, our first interview will be with Nick McCullen, um, who is a re- journalist and researcher in the Pacific Islanders. Um, and so we're going to be talking about um, a particular topic that probably doesn't really get covered much in the mainstream media, um, but it's about uh, the independence referendum in a Pacific island called Kanaki to New Caledonia, which is um, acronymed as KNNC. Um, so I'll just play a quick few announcements and then we'll get him on the line. All right. Good morning, um, listeners. You're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, it is um, 7.15am on the 855am dial. Um, in the studio, uh, on the line, we have Nick McClellan. Um, he works as a journalist and researcher in the Pacific Islanders. Um, and so we're going to be doing a bit of an interview with him to talk about um, the political situation in Kanaki uh, to also to New Cadet. Kanaki, New Caledonia. And um, to discuss really the, well, the big kind of political debate is the November 4th independence referendum. Um, so good morning, Nick. Are you there? Good morning. Hello, yes. Yeah, good morning. I, I accidentally pressed the wrong button, so I didn't hear you before. I, um, so um, I guess the first, we just introduced you, and I, I guess the first kind of question um, to ask, um, just for <laughs> listeners who might not know, much about Kaniki to New Caledonia, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Kaniki, New Caledonia. <laughs> Can you give us a bit of a sort of political background and tell us a bit about the kind of political background before we go and move on to discuss the kind of independence referendum and kind of what it means? Yeah, well, New Caledonia is one of Australia's closest neighbours. It's off the coast of Queensland. It's a Melanesian nation, uh, so tied to the whole Melanesian arc, uh, surrounded by independent countries like Vanuatu, Solomon's PNG. The indigenous population, the Kanak people, have um, um, very close cultural ties with neighbouring Melanesian countries. But uh, like Australia, New Caledonia has been uh, uh, been colonised. It's a settler colonial nation and indeed followed a very similar pattern to Australia. Firstly, as a penal settle- settlement when it was established by France as a colony in 1853, then there was a lot of free settlement with people coming and taking over pastoral lands, stealing Kanak land for a, a, a very much Queensland cattle station uh, style of pastoralism. More recently, of course, mining. New Caledonia's got over a quarter of the world's nickel reserves and uh, so for more than a century has had a, an extremely strong mining industry and now uh, also the smelting of nickel rather than just uh, the mining of ore. So it's a country of about 270,000 people. And the Kanaks, through that colonial history, have become a minority in their own country, making up about 40% of the population. 
um, not just because of sediment from France, but also people being brought from other French colonies in the Pacific um, and indeed uh, Vietnam back in the colonial days as indentured labourers and more recently as workers for, for the nickel industry. Um, so people have come, for example, from Wallace and Fortuna, which is another French Pacific territory, and there are more Walesians today in New Caledonia than there are in their home islands. So um, what, what is um, sort of the, the, the relationship between... Because um, I know um, Konecki is the Indigenous name for the Pacific Island, um, but, it's also, but it's known to French colonisers as New Caledonia. Um, so what is sort of the relationship between France and um, the island now? Well, it's still a colony of France. Um, in 1986, it was relisted with the United Nations on what they call their list of non-self-governing territories. So going back to the, the 60s, the UN has had a special committee on decolonisation, and New Caledonia is recognised as a, effectively a colony by the UN, by the international community. And um, since the um, post-war period, but particularly the 1970s, there's been firstly a movement for growing autonomy from France, but then a strong independence movement. Um, in the mid-1970s, uh, a number of students returning from uh, France um, and the events of May 1968, which we've just commemorated, um, formed a, a group called the Foulard Rouge, the Red Scarves. Um, there were also political parties, long-standing political parties, like Union Caledonienne, um, the Caledonian Union, which turned towards independence in the mid to late 70s, um, particularly led by a man named Jean-Marie Chibau, a, a great Kanak leader who was assassinated in 1989. And so a series of parties um, um, in favour of independence from France uh, formed this independence coalition in 1984 called the FLNKS, the Kanak Socialist National Liberation Front, and like other National Liberation Fronts, it sought to uh, win support for, uh, um, you know, a, a move towards independence um, rather than remaining a colony of France. Our other program has a question. Yeah, so Nick, there seems to be a little bit of a scare campaign um, about the, the independence referendum in that um, it might lead to poverty. Um, can you uh, have, do you have anything to say about that sort of thing? What's the, the view of the people that you've spoken to? Well, the FLNKS has, has been mapping out their vision of society of what a post-independent nation might mean and really trying to win support from people, um, particularly in the Walesian community, the Tahitian community, other islanders um, who are often working-class people. Um, the, one of the key things that they highlight is that although France provides a lot of funding through grants and investment, um, it's very much boomerang aid that the vast bulk of the benefits go back to France. And so, although the uh, French state provides funding to the local provincial structures, provincial assemblies and the National Congress for, for programs, um, a lot of the money is paid, for example, to French public servants, to the French military, um, that uh, even paying for pensions for people who get, uh, you know, coming out on a short-term contract from France get enormous benefits and bonuses um, for... Uh, um, uh, their their time in New Caledonia. And so the Canaks have argued that, um, firstly, through addressing questions of, you know, equity and, and the mismanagement of funds, 
um, they can address a lot of these concerns. But more importantly, New Caledonia has incredible strategic resources. Obviously the nickel that I mentioned, but also marine resources, and that gives them something to leverage in, with the international community. And uh, certainly there's countries from around Asia, obviously China, but also other countries that are interested in, in uh, you know, New Caledonia's nickel reserves. And to that extent, they're much better placed than some other small Pacific countries to move towards a viable economy, even as an independent nation. Yeah, so can you tell us um, a bit more about this November 4th um, independence referendum? Um, so what are kind of like the forces that are supporting it and um, how have they, you know, what is sort of the case that they're making to the population? And I've also noticed that um, that um, one of the proposals is that they would combine um, the name, the, the colonised name with the Indigenous name and sort of what is sort of the implications of that? Yeah, look, it's... It's a, the end of, coming to the end of a long transition. During the 1980s, there was armed conflict between the French state and the independence movement uh, and also right-wing settlers who formed militias against independence. Um, a series of agreements uh, culminated in 1998 in the thing called the Noumea Accord, and that set out a 20-year transition where Paris would pass powers to the local government, the local administration, um, but the French state still controls the key, what are called sovereign powers, defence, foreign policy, control of the currency, control of the courts and police. And so the end of the the Namir Accord is in fact a provision for a referendum on self-determination. And as you say, that's going ahead on the 4th of November this year. Um, there's provision, in fact, for three referendum. If the first time people vote no, there's a possibility of two more referenda over the next five years. Um, the balance of forces is tricky on the ground. Um, as I said before, the Kanaks are a minority in their own country, and most Kanaks support independence. Most people of European heritage don't. Um, they're going to vote against independence, uh, fearful of the loss of privilege and loss of resources from France. Um, so it's a question of, of mobilising support. Um, there's a lot of people who abstain from elections uh, in local government and for the French presidential elections and so on. This is part of France, so people can vote for the European Parliament, vote for, you know, Macron and the French uh, Senate and so on. Um, but many locals don't. They don't feel that that's relevant to their lives. So a real challenge will be mobilising the vote. And what we're going to see over the next couple of months is uh, significant campaigning on the ground by both opponents and supporters of independence. Hmm. Um, the real challenge, too, is is persuading uh, people, uh, particularly from the Walesian community and uh, Tahitians and others who've migrated to New Caledonia, that their future lies in an independent state rather than remaining in a colonial situation. Yeah. Megan, you have a question? So, yeah, so I guess it's important to note that there is a precedent that's been set with the, the Numea um, uh, agreement, that this is something that has been in the works for a while. Um, it hasn't come out of the blue. Um how how are you going to go about convincing the people who who need to be convinced? Is it something that needs international um, support? Uh, what what sort of strategies are you going to be using? The FLNKS has always argued that uh, the international community and particularly neighbouring countries in the Pacific, like Australia, New Zealand, uh, Pacific Island countries, have a role to play in this. That international scrutiny is absolutely vital in terms of keeping 
France, uh, a, a, you know, in line with the promises that it's made. I mean, the FLNK sees this as a decolonisation process. Um, some of the opposing Conservative parties certainly don't, and they want to stay with France. Um, but uh, this, the FLNK sees this in the light of the UN. So they've worked very hard um, over many years to get UN involvement uh, through the UN Special Committee on Decolonisation. And uh, over the last couple of years, um, the United Nations has spent uh, monitors to look at the registration of people on voting rolls. So they've had international monitors uh, to ensure that uh, Canucks can get properly registered on the rolls, which has been an area of some dispute over who can vote uh, in November. Um, they're also going to get a mission from um, the United Nations to come uh, for the actual vote in November. Um, there's long been support from the Melanesian countries, the Melanesian Spearhead Group, Papua New Guinea, Vanuatu, Solomons, Fiji, and the FLNKS is a full member of that sub-regional organisation, and they've provided crucial diplomatic and financial support. The real problem, however, here is here in Australia. As you'll know, um, Australia, successive Australian governments have formed deep strategic ties with France. Uh, President mm -hmm. Macron visited here in May this year and um, talked about strategic cooperation in the Indo-Pacific region, which is the new jargon for, for our part of the world. Um, you know, Australia is buying $50 billion worth of submarines from the uh, uh, French Corporation Naval Group, a French state-owned corporation, and as uh, a whole range of other uh, uh, defence relationships with corporations like Thales, uh, which provides a lot of equipment to the uh, Australian Defence Force. So that fear about China and its emerging power in the region is driving Australia to see France as a stable Western democratic power in the region. And we really tied ourselves, uh, our government certainly has, to French colonialism. Mm, and that's yeah. where there's a, a real role. Uh, in the 1980s, during the, the time of armed conflict in New Caledonia, Australian trade unionists uh, and churches and others played a vital role in solidarity with the FLNKS. Um, you know, Australian unions help fund uh, key initiatives like Radio Jidu, the local Kanak radio station, provided a lot of practical support on the ground. Now, a lot of that solidarity has dropped away um, since the signing of the Namir Accord, but we're coming back to a crucial time. Even if the first vote in November this year goes against independence, there is provision for two more votes over the next couple of years. And so uh, it's a really crucial time for Australians to start looking not just at struggles here in Australia, but at uh, what's going on in the region around them. And we need to build that support, absolutely. Yeah, well, there's a, there was a visit um, uh, in uh, July by Daniel Goa, who's the official spokesperson of the FLNKS, the Independence Coalition. He's the president of the largest party, Union Caledonienne, and he met with uh, the ACTU, with Australian trade unions, as well as with the government, with the Foreign Minister Bishop and others. And he very clearly said that, uh, you know, international support um, is, is pretty crucial. Uh, the Pacific Island Forum leaders meeting is coming up in September, the first week of September in uh, Nauru, and uh, Prime Minister Turnbull will be going alongside other forum leaders. It's a really important time for people to be calling on Australia to, uh, you know, support this right to self-determination um, because this is an issue not just for New Caledonia but also for neighbouring states like Bougainville, uh, which is seeking uh, independence from Papua New Guinea, and, of course, the West Papuan self-determination struggle, which is um, uh, strong but growing and, uh, and also seeking regional support 
um, for uh, the right to determine the political status of uh, of this colonised people. Mm. I get. I guess some. Um, let's um, sort of sum it up. Can do you have any kind of like final comments that you'd like to make, um, Nick? Um, yeah. Look, I think it's really important, uh, as I say, that. Uh, that people start uh, reading up and uh, and uh, engaging with uh, uh, groups uh, that are campaigning on these issues. There is a NAC representative, an FLNKS representative in Australia. Um, obviously, there's a strong solidarity movement with West Papua. Um, there's a real opportunity for people uh, uh, as trade unionists, as people in left-wing parties, as people in right-wing parties, to uh, um, find out more about these issues and uh, um, to uh, actively support... Uh, their sort of campaigns. Uh, fundamentally, this right to self-determination is an issue on the international agenda. Um, our government doesn't really want to talk about it because of its strategic ties to countries like France and Indonesia that are seen as bulwarks against Chinese power in the region. But um, I think we need to be talking about the rights of Indigenous peoples, uh, not just in Australia, but indeed in the region around us. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, thank you very much, Nick. Um, in fact, I found that to be very fascinating. Yeah, thank and, you for that I'm analysis. I'm definitely very interested to find out, actually read up more on my own time. Thanks for the chance to chat. Good morning. Yeah, no problem. Bye. All right, you're listening to... That was um, done by Camp Cope. Um, you are listening to Greenleft Weekly Radio. It is 7.36 a.m. on 8... And... All right, so and um, I think it's sort of time to give a bit of an active support of some of the recent kind of actions or campaigns that are coming up right now. Um, so I'm going to Megan's going to kind of start by talking about Pepper Street Place. Yes. So um, Pepper Tree Place is um, an issue that's close to my home and therefore close to my heart. So Pepper Tree Place is in the heart of Coburg and it's a wonderful little creatively designed community green space which has a lot of uh, community support. Um, it's a framed by an historic bluestone church and stables. It's an oasis of gardens, chooks, a cafe, a homegrown nursery and a multitude of community programs. Now, the Kildonan Uniting Care, which is an entity of the Uniting Church, uh, which established Pepper Tree Place about 15 years ago, recently merged with 21 smaller disparate Uniting Church agencies to become Uniting, uh, which is the name of that um, that organisation now. Now, Uniting has informed the staff and volunteers um, of Pepper Tree Place on August 9th that the site was to be closed to the public in four weeks' time and that they had six weeks' work left. So it was quite abrupt. Um, a group of concerned Moreland residents, including myself, um, who don't want to see this unique space lost, have jumped in to try and secure Pepper Tree Place's long-term future and ensure the community programs have a permanent home. Um, now, uh, Sue Bolton, who is a Moreland councillor, and this is her local um, area, um, said that it's extremely short-sighted of Uniting to close Pepper Tree Place. Pepper Tree Place plays a unique role in the community. It offers respite from the world as well as an open and safe green space. Um, it's especially important right now, um, given that there's a sea of high-rise constructions planned for the Pentridge development, which is my area where I live. Um, we can already see nearby open spaces like Lake Reserve are becoming overcrowded in summer. Uh, Pepper Tree Place is the only service in Coburg that distributes emergency relief, so it's incredibly important that this service remains. And with more than 100 volunteers, uh, Pepper Tree Place has literally been a lifesaver for some people, helping them after hardship 
If uniting it doesn't keep Peppertree Place open, it's essential that the land is not sold off so that we can keep the space as an independent community organisation, Bolton said. And um, it's important to note, I live in that area and the green space of that area is quite precious. As Sue mentioned, there's a lot of high-rise and high-intensity, uh, high high um, uh, density buildings going up there. Green space in Coburg and the Moreland area is important as well as this community space. And it's also important to note that um, the, there is a farmer's market that's moved from O'Hay Street in Coburg to the Coburg Primary School on Bell Street and that has also enlivened this community space. There's a lot of people now going to the market that then wander into Pepper Tree Place and it is really become, it's really become a community hub and it would be such a loss to lose that place. And so I would encourage people who are interested in getting in, involved in the campaign uh, to join the Save Pepper Tree Place Facebook group. There is also a meeting um, on this coming Sunday. So just check Saturday. out. Saturday. Oh, sorry, this coming Saturday. It's tomorrow. Um, do you know what time that is, actually? 12.30. 12.30 at Pepper Tree Place. So we would encourage people to come along and help save this um, important um, uh, community space. Yeah. yeah, I actually live right next – well, um, it's on my street of where I live, actually, um, in Coburg. And I think, actually, probably one of the justifications why they're probably pushing to get rid of Pepper Tree Place is um, for – the organisation that holds it, I imagine the land is extremely valuable. Very, um, it's very lucrative. Very, it's yeah. very close in proximity to um, the train station, very close proximity to the tram routes and the public yep, transport. And the shopping centre. And shopping centre. So I, I can actually kind of imagine the future that um, a property developer would love to have that space and build a bunch of apartments on top of it. Um, but then what we're doing is we're getting rid of the reason why people love Coburg so much, one of the reasons. And and it is a community hub and there are a lot of people who need that space, mm. including families, including low-income people. It's an important part of the, the Coburg and the Moreland community. Yeah, well, that's that's just that's sort of the contradiction with um, mm. you know, <laughs> property developers um, yes. um, prioritising their own sort of short-term interests over the interests of community um, now, next kind of thing I want to talk about is um, just a bit of a campaign that's happening on, in Sydney. Um, uh, on Saturday, there were over 500 people um, bearing handmade lanterns and banners marched through Sydney on August 11th to protest the State Coalition's multi-billion um, transport privatisation and road tollway um, scams. Um, these scams include, the, as written Green Left Weekly here, uh, the $17 billion West Connex private road tollway project, which has been the subject of criticism from the Auditor General and the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. Um, it is now also the subject of a New South Wales parliamentary inquiry, which calls being made for a Royal Commission into transport planning in the state. And um, this action was organised by the Fixed New South Wales Transport Coalition, which includes about 30 community groups and trade unions, such as the Rail, Shram and Bus Union and the Public Service Association. The coalition's objective is to make the, this planet corruption of New South Wales transport planning investment a decisive issue in the March 2019 state elections. Um, speaking to Green Left Weekly about the protest, um, fixed New South Wales transport organiser Andrew Shutter said, we've succeeded in creating a really positive ride while maintaining a strong political message. Um, so that's sort of a, a bit of a, a report on sort of a rally that kind of happened around against the West Connects campaign. And that's been kind of like a, been a very ongoing, uh, strong campaign in Sydney, um, very similar to... Um, the Stop East-West Link campaign that happened in Melbourne back in 2014. Um, there's all been, there's all, 
been all these local groups around the different suburbs of Sydney been popping up and they've been organising actions and so on. And also one of the things about this campaign as well is that a lot of the local city councils are also in support of this campaign, while it's the state, uh, the conservative state government that is really pushing through this sort of road um, tollway kind of project. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's sort of what's um, that's that's uh, just to be a report on the kind of West Connects campaign. Um, we might go into um, some more stories from Green Left Weekly um, for the next fifteen minutes before we go into the activist calendar. But first, I'll just go play a few announcements. You're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. It is 7.45am on um, on the 855am dial. And so I think um, me and Megan will spend the next 15 minutes um, covering a few articles from uh, the latest um, issue of Green Left Weekly. Um, so I'll get Megan just going to start off a discussion of one article. Yes. So um, the, the title of the article is Worst Drought in Living Memory, Just Don't Mention Climate Change. It's by Susan Price. Um, it's a, obviously a really pressing issue, but it's one that's really me- meaning that we are um, starting to have mainstream people look at what's happening, say, with the farmers and connecting it to um, global climate change. So with confirmation that 100%, 100% of New South Wales is now officially in drought, it's clear that the federal government's climate change denial is putting agriculture and the planet at risk. Agriculture Minister David Littleproud reckons it's a big call to say that the drought ravaged, um, ravaging large parts of the country is linked to human-induced climate change. On ABC's Q&A on August 6, Littleproud wheeled out the old argument that climate change occurs regardless of human activities. And he said that farmers have been dealing with climate change since we first put till to the soil, since we first started agriculture, and we've been adapting. And National Party Senator Barnaby Joyce, who represents the drought-stricken region of New England, told Sky News that the same day that the drought is a natural disaster, in quotes, and that lowering emissions will have no effect on climate change... He said, do you honestly believe that we, what we do in Canberra is going to change the climate? It's not. Now, this is some, something that's really important. Obviously, these are our elected um, politicians and they are denying that anything they do is going to actually have any effect on what you know on, on our planet and on the climate. Um, but also saying, well, hang on, you can't ex- actually say that what this what's happening is due to climate change, which is absolute rubbish. It's total rubbish. I mean... Climate change knows no borders and what Australia is experiencing is part of a global crisis. We need to act. And this is interesting. Susan's um, put in here and this this to me is, is quite worrying and quite telling. People are dying in record numbers in heat waves in Japan, Canada and parts of Europe. Uh, California is experiencing wildfires so intense that they have created their own weather events, including tornadoes. Devastating fires are destroying lives and land across parts of Europe and burning as far north as the Arctic Circle. Let me just repeat, the fires are burning as far north as the Arctic Circle. We really need to... um we need to emphasise this. We need to have it hit home with our elected politicians and, you know, our, our the mainstream community that this is not an issue that we can um, that we can just be, be lax on. We really need to push this, and we really need to emphasise that what's happening now with all of these things. Each individual event, yes, scientists say that you can't actually connect an individual event to climate change, but this trend that we are seeing here, the evidence backs that it is climate 
uh, climate change induced. This is part of human-induced climate change and we need to do something about it and we need to do something about it fast. So this is definitely something that I would like to emphasise. And also, um, just to let you know, um, Socialist Alliance has a, a, a um, an event that's coming up and um, this will be part of the activist calendar. So on the 28th of August at 6.30 um, at the Resistance Centre Bookshop in Melbourne, there's going to be a, a climate justice talk. It's called Hot, 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 Fighting for Climate Justice. We've got a couple of guest speakers and we're basically um, pushing the whole um, we need to act on, cl- on climate change. And what do, what are we doing now that's hindering um, what we can do in the future that would make a difference? Yep. Yep. All right, thanks for that, Megan. Um, just want to talk about... Um, Two sort of um, articles around um, some developments that have sort of happened in um, Latin America. Um, the kind of first sort of um, country I want to focus on is Venezuela. Um, and this is just reading from an article from Venezuela Analysis um, um, around this um, whole kind of attempted assass- um, this assassination attempt on President Nicolas Mandura. Um, now, one thing I kind of want to scrutinise here that's in this article is there has been, I guess, some very kind of dishonest kind of media coverage around it, especially from the mainstream press. And one of the issues I'm, I, I see here, and this is written here in the article, that, you know, the mainstream media, um, you know, coverage um, kind of seeks to sour kind of doubt on the events um, using words such as apparent or alleged. Um, and, you know, and it focused a lot on, you know, the government's kind of response on using this alleged event to step up repression. And I think, you know, there are plenty of examples. And one of the kind of focuses in this article is um, what The Guardian did, um, how The Guardian covered it. And, you know, a quick search of Guardian headlines of assassination attempt shows that a qualifier such as alleged is never used, be it Jaques Shahak, Guinea's president, or even Saddam Hussein's deputy. Nobody's had their... This is talking about previous sort of assassination attempts of um, previous sort of other kind of countries' leaders. Um, nobody has sort of had their assassination attempts questioned as a hoax to be used as a pretext to stamp out dissent. Yet, of course... When it comes to Venezuela, the story is a lot different. Um, in the in the opening paragraph of The Guardian, in covering this, it says, Venezuelan's opposition has warned that President Nicolas Maduro may launch a political crackdown after he accused adversaries of attempting to assassinate him with drones loaded with explosives on Saturday. And, of course... Remarkably, always it's always seems to be you know the voices of the Venezuelan opposition that always sort of takes precedence in these kind of articles, um, and of course you know there's what one one of the one of the thing, but of course you know one of the things is I think a, a kind of issue is it's kind of I think putting a very kind of dishonest picture because you had a democratically elected you know. Pres, uh, democratic leader in the case of Venezuela, who was just being had an attempted assassination attempt by a drone, and you know we know that Venezuela is the subject of uh, you know there is a, a deliberate attempt by the U.S. government to mm. destabilize the government. Um, you know, plenty of people can have all all sorts of criticisms of the Venezuelan government, like, but you have we have a case, a situation where where you have a, a right wing opposition that is. And a U and US, the United States, and its you know relationship with the with Latin American has always been that of you know instituting getting coups and um, 
you know, taking down democratic legislation. And it's very, I think, very problematic that a, a so-called left-wing a publication that describes itself as left-wing is actually taking, pushing, putting forward, the, you know, the right-wing kind of version of, uh, you know, kind of the right-wing voice, giving a voice to the right-wing on this thing. And I think, you know, there's clearly, and it's quite clear the right-wing opposition has even said they want to undemocratically overthrow the Maduran government. Um, they always constantly call for a coup um, and even reports on foiled attempts when something actually takes place, like in this case of this drone attempt, the kind of mainstream kind of reaction of the mainstream press is that the US slash Colombian slash Venezuelan opposition had nothing to do with this coup slash decision attempt, which maybe didn't even happen. So it's kind of sound there too. And of course, and you know, since it failed, it's all in the, in the, de- uh, in the dictator's imagination, which is this dictator being referred to as Maduro. And of course, you know, all of which will then justify people wanting to kill Maduro or attempting or attempt a coup, and then the cycle starts again. So that's sort of the, this sort of picture of the mainstream media um, trying to push. And I think you know this article kind of concludes there's a constant set of background assumptions being created to endorse and provide cover for these actions, and this is achieved um, in conclusion through the mis- Western media's systematically dishonest coverage of Venezuela. Um, now the other. Um, just going on to Argentina, um, Argentina activists and feminists organised in the national campaign for the right to legal, safe and free abortion. Um, and they've vowed to continue the fight after after the Senate rejected the voluntary interruption of pregnancy bill. Um, and this happened on August 8th. Um, the bill passed by Congress in June would have ended the criminalisation of women seeking to terminate pregnancy within the first uh, 14 weeks. Um, ahead of the vote in which um, the defeat was expected, Argentina activists flooded the streets across the country in the thousands. Um, after the vote, um, Telesur English said the joy of those supporting a woman's right to choose gave way for sadness and anger. And, you know, meanwhile, uh, you know, the failing of, of this passing legislation, you know, anti-choice um, activists in Argentina's Catholic search celebrated the result. It means the status quo in which... Um, abortions are legal only in the cases of rape or danger to the woman's life and health prevails. And of course, Argentina's you know health minister estimates that abortion ban claims the lives of hundred women each year. Um, but the fight is get to still continue the campaign. Argentina feminists and activists are still get to continue to campaign until until women you know win the right to you know have the right to abortion and and the right to with choice um, and. And, you know, you know, so that's kind of, that's kind of, I guess, the current situation, I guess, in Argentina politics at the moment right now. <clears throat> now, um, I guess another kind of thing I want to talk about, um, this is just something that's just want to talk about for the next five minutes. Um, this is not an article in Green Left Weekly, although it's something we mo- um, that Green Left Weekly might be covering in the future. Um, but in the past week, we've um, saw an interesting kind of um, trend of uh, number and a number of sites and Facebook pages being deleted um, off Facebook and then reappearing again. Um, for context, um, there's been a bit of um, celebration from the left um, that, um, you know, social media sites such as Facebook and social, uh, and Twitter have deleted um, Alex Jones's... Um, he also had his pirate radio station shut down. Yeah, well. uh, having it all yeah. um, kind of shut down. But... Um, I've always had a bit of scepticism towards sort of celebrating kind of result like that. I mean, it's not like I really care about Alex Jones. I think 
you know, I, I I'm not going to campaign to defend his right to have his voice being heard on a platform like Facebook and Twitter. But some of the recent developments in the past week have seen Facebook take down Telesur, um English Facebook page, just delete it with um, no explanation whatsoever. And Telesur is a uh, uh, a publication that is known, you know, for being a voice of dissent, uh, a, le- a consistently left-wing um, voice um, for Latin American politics and world politics. And, you know, it's been sort of taken down. Was, the fact that it was taken down by Facebook with no explanation whatsoever and possibly the only explanation it could be is the fact that, you know, it reflected a bit of dissent to the status quo. Um, of course, the sort of um, justification from the sort of elite is that, oh, well, Telesur pushes fake news, therefore we have to get rid of it kind of thing, just like Alex Jones. So they're making this um, false equivalence of, you know, extreme, well, radical left-wing voices being the same as extreme right-wing voices in their relativity. Um, and also Venezuela Analysis, um, which is um, a page sort of dedicated to sort of, um, which is an article, we actually just read from an article from Venezuela Analysis, also had its Facebook page taken down, although I think it has since reappeared. It might have come back up again. Yeah, but um, I think this, I I would be extremely sceptical of, I think, rel- being so reliant on these multi-national corporations like Facebook and Twitter mm. to, to be fair and partial when it comes to um, political voices. Um, and then their kind of recent taking down of Telesur English and Venezuela analysis, although they have been taken back up, I think the only reason they got taken back up is because people raised, a bit, raised yeah. a bit of a fuss. And there's also, some, I guess, some worrying trends, um, and this is following... Um, following, uh, you know, this whole kind of thing about the context for the Donald Trump election, um, about this, we're living in an era of fake news. Um, so Google is deliberately, and Facebook as well, is deliberately kind of filtering content. Um, and of course, you know, if they're filtering things like Alex Jones and conspiratorial sites, well, yeah, that's not necessarily an issue. I'm not going to complain. However, I, ha- I do have disagreements in that obviously that's used as an excuse to filter out other things. Yeah, yeah, so that's why yeah. I'm getting to the point. So yeah. it then is being used to a pretense to filter out other dissenting voices. And I think the dominant kind of viewpoint from the liberal elite is that news sources like New York Times, Washington Post and The Guardian, this is a US context, so those are seen as like the respectable centrist kind of voices that shouldn't be filtered but anything to further to the left or to the right of that has to be deliberately censored and um mild and so i think that's uh, a really big issue and i think it's sort of like it almost reflects sort of like the dominance of sort of neoliberal ideology because yeah overall kind of neoliberal publications which are consistent in their reporting Obviously, other ones that don't make the cut um, uh, of being cut by um, these corporations like Google, but of dissenting voices like you know Telesaur English are ones that are seen as too extreme and irrational. Therefore, we have to get rid of them. So, I think there's a, there's a bit of room to have a bit more of analysis on on this sort of trend. Um, yeah. I was just thinking the term fake news is obviously very pl- problematic, and what we have at the moment is we have corporations like Google and Facebook determining what is and isn't uh, fake news. Mm. And obviously when you get these corporations determining this, it's not a, it's not a democratic process. Mm. It's, it's a corporation deciding what you can and cannot see. That's always going to be problematic. Mm. Um, so this whole fake news thing, this, this term is a very easy way to uh, segue into um, censorship. I mean, they already do it when we mm. have a look at Google and China, but, you know, this, this is a very easy way to make it... Uh, 
uh, more sort of widespread yeah. censorship. And I think I, I think one thing to acknowledge is well, yeah, clearly there is such a thing as fake news. There's a lot of crap, absolutely, uh, um, sort of things on yeah. on the mainstream uh, in the media, like especially if you took, you know nine eleven conspiracy theories, all that kind of stuff. And I mean, those are all fake news. But I think I guess the issue is the fact that it is done. It is. It is done in a very kind of elitist. Who off- gets to determine what is and isn't and, fake yeah, news? And it's and yeah. ordinary people like us, like ordinary community radio stations, ordinary community media, generally have no say no. on on what con- what constitutes say because we can just be con- easily just as constituted as as fake news because we don't mm. fit within the sort of elite kind of liberal kind of framework. All right, um, I'll just play a quick announcement, um, and we'll go on to the activist calendar. All right, uh, it's 8.02 a.m. At, um, on Green Left Weekly Radio, and you're listening to The Activist Calendar. Uh, so what we've got coming up in terms of things, um, protests and political activities you can get involved in, um, there is going to be on Saturday, on Saturday, there's obviously um, there's going to be the Save Pepper Tree Place um, meeting um, taking place on Saturday at Pepper Tree Place. And do you know the exact address um, for Pepper Tree Place? Again? I don't. It's along Urquhart Street in Coburg. Yeah. But if you Google Pepper Tree Place, it comes up. Yeah. Um, on on next Friday, um, this coming Friday, there's going to be a book launch, um, the far left in Australia since 1945, um, which is going to be at 5 p.m. at the Ian Potter um Museum of Art, Melbourne University. And also happening on Friday, August 24th, will be the Victorian Socialist Election Manifesto launch at 6.30pm at the Brunswick Town Hall, where we'll be kind of, you'll see the launch of the manifesto. We're actually going to be interviewing the lead candidate of Victorian Socialists in a number of minutes soon. Um, on on s- next Saturday, on August 25th, um, there'll be, interesting enough, there'll be a counter-protest to the March for Men. Um, and this is by um, the notorious um, anti-feminist, racist and conservative figure, Sydney Watson, who, to be honest, I actually hadn't heard of until she called this mar- so-called March for Men, um, which is a rally for right-wing anti-feminists to come together and take to the streets of Melbourne. The March for Men gives a platform to racist, sexist and misogynists continu- to continue to pushing harmful re- rhetoric about the feminist movement and its aims to achieve gender equality. And, of course, it's when um, combined campaign against racism and fashion and inviting people to attend the counter-rally, which is going to be at 1pm next Saturday at the Federation Square. Um, there'll be a forum happening, which we advertised before, the following Tuesday, on Tuesday, August the 28th, um, forum Hot, 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 Fighting for Climate Justice, um, and it's a panel of activists look at how arrested interests are stopping the remedies to address climate change and how we need to fight back. And so they'll be at the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanson Street, um, and opposite RMIT, and it's presented by Green Left Weekly and Socialist Alliance. Um, there'll be a public meeting, um, digital tech and for planet and people rather than the privileged, and that will feature um, Lizzie O'Shea. Um, uh, um, they'll, they'll feature Lizzie O'Shea at 7pm at the International Bookshop, um, and that'll be on Tuesday, August the 28th. On Wednesday, the August the 29th, um, There'll be a public meeting, um, the case to bring them here, um, which will f- um, feature Nick McKim, Green Senator and spokesperson for Immigration and Justice, uh, Abdul Aziz Adam, who's a Sudanese refugee detained in Manus for five years. Um, he'll be live via Skype. And so they'll be happening at 6.30pm Wednesday, August the 29th um, at the ANMF 535 Elizabeth Street, um, hosted by, and it's hosted by Refugee Action Collective. 
Um, on yeah, there actually doesn't seem to be that many events here. I hope I haven't missed much. But um, on Friday, September the 7th, um, there'll be a protest against Nigel Farage. Um, probably people know he's the leader of UKIP, or I'm not sure if he is still a leader, but he might. Um, but he's going to be touring Australia. And so there'll be there's a rally organised by a counter-rally against him uh, um, at 6pm at the Crown Casino on Friday, September the 7th. And also happening at that same time will be a public meeting, an evening with Chelsea Manning, um, 7pm at the Melbourne Convention Exhibition Centre. And as I kind of said last week, those two events are kind of right next to each other, so you can probably go to both if you're willing. <laughs> um, and also the last event is on Tuesday, September 11th, um, the public meeting, um, The Many Socialisms of Ernie Lang, um, an attempt to make sense of Australian pre-Bolshevik socialism by examining the ideological evolution of pioneering radical Ernest Henry Lane. Um, and they'll be at the New International Bookshop on September, Tuesday, 11. Okay, um, so I'll just go play a quick announcement. And um, actually our guest is in the studio, so we'll be doing an interview with him and introduce him shortly. All right, um, in the studio we have um, local Yarra councillor Stephen Jolly, um, who is get a, who is the lead candidate um, for Victorian Socialists, um, which is running in the state election in November the twenty fourth. Um, I've been speaking, we've been speaking quite a bit about um, the Victorian Socialist campaign and the events that um, that they've been organising. Um, but this is kind of the first time we finally had Stephen Jolly in the studio to talk about the campaign. Thank you, um, Steve. Thanks for being. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, yeah. So um, I guess maybe um, there's probably a lot of listeners who have probably heard about the campaign, but there might be a number of listeners who probably haven't heard about it. So can you give us a bit of a kind of introduction to the Victorian Socialist campaign and, you know, what, what you're kind of campaigning for and what you're going to bring to the state election? Well, I mean, I think in a nutshell, more and more people are just over the capitalist bullshit. You know, I mean, whether <laughs> it's like it is. <laughs> no matter what you're looking at, um, it's big business developers, corporations that are running the show, and they're compliant politicians that they pay off at election time with, with a few crumbs off the cake who do their bidding, and the rest of us are just left behind. I mean, one example is the very suburb we're sitting in right now. If you walk out of the 3CR studio, you'll see seven cranes. There's never been a, more building taking place in Collingwood probably since it was built, but not a single unit that's being built at the present moment in time is for poor people or young people or people on the average or below average income. So it's a, even the boom, it's for the rich, it's for investors, it's for the, the elite, it's not for us. And we need to push back. Um, you know, and if we don't, the type of nonsense we heard this week from Elling and Catter, those people will opportunistically tap in to people's dissatisfaction and say, oh, it's all because of what, refugees and migrants and so on. So I suppose the left has got to step up and that's what we've done. The left have come together. Um, into this um, coalition, as, as Jacob, as you've said. And, um, and if I get up, I'll hopefully I'll be able to do statewide what we've been doing locally with Sue in Moreland and myself in Yarra, which is advocating for alternative left-wing socialist progressive solutions to the problems of the day, but also helping to organize and mobilize people to fight back. It's really that simple. And, um, you know, it just it's just taken off. It's been a great response so far. Um, can you tell us a bit more about the particular seat that you're running in, the Northern Metropolitan, and kind of what kind of local kind of issues are going to be taking up and sort of how has sort of the campaign kind of been going up to this point because you're, we're getting right into, I guess, now the intense kind of campaign period. Yeah, anyone who lives in the northern suburbs of Melbourne literally can vote for our, um, for our campaign. In fact, we're going to be standing upper house candidates in every single seat 
in Victoria, which is something. But in particular, we're concentrating on the northern metropolitan region. So that goes from the city centre um, through Yarra all the way up to Epping and then across to Broadie and then down again through Moreland um, back to the city. So it's like an upside-down triangle. It's about half a million voters. Five people are elected for that upper house seat. And we're going to go and try and win one of those spots and get a socialist. We get the first socialist in Parliament since 1944 in, in, in Australia. So that's sort of the seat. Um, and um, the main two issues we're running on are housing. Um, and uh, we've got a policy for 50,000 new homes in the next five years, inclusion rezoning to force developers to have a percentage of low-cost houses and all the big developments that are taking place. That doesn't exist in Australia. Um, legislation was brought in last week by Labour um, to allow councils to talk to developers about the possibility of inclusionary zoning, but it's not mandated. How it's, effective. Oh, it's absolutely piss weak. You know, um, it's, it's really strange when you park your car, you get a fine and there's no getting around. You know, if you park your car illegally um, in Smith Street outside the front of this building, you'll get a fine. There's nothing you can do about it. But when it comes to planning, the laws are so discretionary that you could run, you know, drive a bus through them. The other issue we're running on is public transport and to try and turn the city for the first time into a mass transit city the likes of which we see, for example, in Amsterdam or Berlin or Singapore. We don't have it right now. Um, Megan has a question. Yeah, so um, just a question. So um, what makes you different and what makes you and the other candidates different from, say, the incumbent, one of the incumbents, Fiona Patton, who is uh, the northern uh, metropolitan area uh, incumbent at the moment? How? What would you do differently? How would you change? What what would you bring to the the seat? Well, it's two things. One is politically we're... We, we don't just blame we, we're not just against the bad things of neoliberalism the impacts of neoliberalism we're against neoliberalism we're against capitalism so we we believe that the problems that working people face are structurally based that the system needs to be changed and therefore we've got an absolutely no illusions when we're elected um that that it's a tough fight and that comes to the second point which is that rather than just saying oh if you vote for us we're going to solve all your problems or we're going to fight our hardest in parliament to get your issues heard and so on um we n- believe that it's only through the mobilization um, and the organization of ordinary people around issues that we can get an f- impact on change. In this very suburb or this very municipality, we stopped the bin tax last year, mainly not because of me in there making speeches, but because the community mobilized to such a degree that the councillors shat themselves that if they didn't listen to the community, they would lose their seat at the next election. That's how we get change in Yarra. That's why we've got you know, the best funded public housing estates and, and the Labour Party MP in this area handing out largesse. Um, left, right, and centre in the last few weeks to try and save a seat. So they're the big differences. Um, it's fundam- it's a fundamental difference between us and, say, the Greens or the Patton, um, and that's why we've been so effective. We're not just saying to people, vote for us, trust us. You only have to look at Sue's record or my record, and if you don't like it, fair enough, but if you do, that's who we want you to vote for. Yeah. Um, I just want one question, and Megan wants to ask a question, but I just want to ask another question. Um, one of the things I think that, um, that a socialist can always bring um, – um, to you know, um, to the parliament, or is this whole question of privatisation? And I want to kind of hear from you, kind of what is the kind of Victorian socialist kind of stance on privatisation and you know corporate handouts, and what are kind of what are kind of the alternatives? Well, the market sucks, and the idea that if we hand everything over to the market, um, everything's going to be fixed. Well, you only have to look at your electricity bill, and your gas bill, and your water bill to see that that's nonsense. Uh, they turn what should be human rights into something to gouge profits out of it's disgusting and as i say coming back to housing um the reason we've got eighty-five thousand people on the public housing waiting list is that liberal and labor have not built a single unit of public housing for years now um they've left um housing provision to the market and that's something that even in capitalist countries is was 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 not considered the right thing to do in the post-war period um 
that the political debate has been shifted so far to the right in the last 30 years in Australia that sometimes even us on the left have got our sights so low. Uh, we're aiming for the stars here. We're aiming, you know, if I get elected, that's not the end of it. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna expand the Victorian Socialists into a party that's going to threaten the Labour Party's hold on working class people. That's our goal. We're not messing around here. Um, it's the time for the socialists to be on the sidelines of the politics. That's over. We can't do that. And anyone who doubts that only has to listen to what happened in federal parliament this week. We're in a race against time. If we don't provide an alternative to ordinary people, the far right are ready and willing to do it for it, to, to take our place. Oh, Megan, you have a question? Yeah, you mentioned the Greens before. Now, um, just due to various circumstances, there's a lot of disaffected Greens supporters and Greens members, etc., including myself, actually. Um, what would you say to them? How, what would you do to try and convince them that your way is the right way and that um, perhaps, you know, come, come on board with you and support your ideals? You know, I mean, on, on the social policy um the Greens uh, overwhelmingly have got very positive, strong social policy you know, on everything from LGBTI rights to refugees and so on and so forth. So, and that you would sort of paper, that, you know, it's hardly any difference, really, not worth writing home to your mother about it on, on social policies. But when it comes to economic policies, not, not so much in word, but in action, it is actually quite different. If you look at the city of Yarra, where we've had a, um, a very, very strong green controlled or at least green influenced council since really 2002. Um, the, the, the economic policies that have been implemented have been absolutely neoliberal. Debt reduction, attempts to bring in the bin tax, even on basic green issues like cycling. Um, we've got one, after 14 years of green domination in Yarra, we've got this one um, dedicated bike lane. It's actually the smallest in the world. It's less than 500 metres along the street that I live in, Wellington Street. Um, the Liberal Council in Melbourne have got more bike lanes than that. So I think that... Um, and the reason for that isn't that they're bad people. I mean, you know, I've got heaps of mates and, and supporters of ours in the Greens and, you know, they're awesome, you know, they're in the Greens for the right reason. But it's a question of not understanding that the bureaucracy are not neutral. They have to be controlled or else they control you. And second of all, of leaning on the community to impact on social change. So, for example, when we want to stop the last Liberal state government selling off the green open space on the public housing estates locally, it wasn't just passing resolutions and going to the media but it was actually the mobilization of people on that estate and the getting of union work bans that forced the liberals to back off and win that thing so we make no apologies for the fact that it's 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 policy but it's also mobilization and that's i think is different from the greens perspective um i guess um the next kind of question i want to ask is um you know, if you were, I guess, um, successful in being elected to the Victorian um, State Parliament, um, actually, before I go, I want to make a sort of quick comment on what you just sort of said there. I guess one of the things is a, what a socialist kind of always brings is we have an understanding that, you know, this, there's something clearly wrong with the system. The system is fundamentally unequal or uncapitalism. And I guess when you have uh, one of the limitations, I guess, of the Greens is – they see the problems caused by the system, but they don't necessarily see the system as the problem. Um, and now that goes into my next question is that, you know, if you are successful in being elected to the Victorian um, State Parliament, you know, how will you approach that work in a forum, you know, as a socialist? And, you know, how do you see the relationship between electoral or parliamentary work and the struggle for radical social change? Well, I mean, you know, just on a structural level, I'll do what I do locally is that we'll be having... Um, street, I mean, it sounds really basic, but it's actually quite important. You know, as a city councillor in Yarra for the last 14 years, I've run a street stall every single Friday afternoon on Smith Street, just down the road outside Woolley, so that people who have, you know, 
um, mums and dads who are maybe single parents, people on shift work can come down and access me about local issues. Um, I run street meetings in different parts of my ward and actually, in fact, different parts of the municipality every Sunday afternoon um, on a rotating basis so people can access me and bring out a newsletter that goes into everyone's letterbox every six months. So those type of um, measures to make yourself accountable and also keep your ear to the ground are absolutely crucial. We would do that at, at a state level, at a higher level. We'd also have an office, obviously, which we would, I would try and turn into um, a centre of organisation and mobilisation. And we would use the opportunity, I mean, I try to do it now, but it would be at a higher level if I was a state MP, um, of media access and parliamentary access to advocate for social solutions, for left-wing solutions to the problems of the day, um, not just local and state issues, but in fact even national and international issues. Um, and um, basically we were just trying to shake the whole bloody thing up, you know, um, um, in the same way as... Um, as Sue and myself have done at a local level. Again, I, c- I come back to this point. We're not saying to people, trust us, we've got these great ideas. We have. I've got a long 14-year record on council. Sue, six years on council. People can study and look at that and see, geez, that's good or that's bad. And if they like it, they can vote for it. If they don't, fair enough. You know. But we'd encourage people to, 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 to investigate um, and study our record. And, um, and if they like it, well, let's push that into the state parliament. Surely people would agree we need new voices there. Yep. Um, probably should have asked this question before this one, but um, the, I actually wanted to sort of um, generally kind of say what is sort of Victorian kind of socialist analysis of this, because we just t- spoke about it before um, at the start of the show of this sort of wave, you know, you alluded to before, but this sort of wave of kind of racism, you know, towards African migrants and towards Muslim community. What is sort of Victorian socialist particular stand on that? Well, it's an attempt to divert people away from the real issues. So everyone's running around saying apex gangs, are um, you know the, the the number one issue in Victorian life, or you know um, you know the refugees are taking our jobs, and, and that's the reason that we've got all the problems we have. Well, we know that's absolute nonsense. Um, we know that you know if you're working in a cafe on Brunswick Street and you're not getting paid properly, that's because you've got a dodgy, greedy boss, not because of some person on Manus Island. If you're working in the industry like I do in the building industry, and somebody gets killed, it's because some boss has put speed ahead of um, safety. It's not because of some Chinese plaster. Um, it, it, it's, it's so. So we, we we're taking up um, the evils of racism morally, politically, but also under um, trying to cut across the the very very smart attempt by the far right to link in people's dissatisfaction with the forty years of neoliberalism to refugees, migrants, and immigration. It's got nothing to do with that. Um, but you can't just simply go to places that have been devastated by neoliberalism, for example, Broad Meadows, and just bl- blindly just, just simply say, racism is really bad, we've all got to love each other. I mean, that's just not going to cut it. You've got to say that for sure, but you've also got to link it to, we, we, we hear your anger. We, we don't try to put cold water on it. We want you to be even more angry as to why you don't have a job, your kids can't get an apprenticeship, the public transport's rooted. But that's not because of Manus Island. It's because of these politicians who put the policies of big business ahead of you. And what we're offering um, is a totally different um, solution to those problems. And the way to get those things over the line is for us all to come together. And and that's the way to cut across racism. Um, and, and, you know, we're really looking forward to that fight um, over the next few weeks and months. All right, the last question I kind of want to ask is um, for people who are interested um, in supporting this campaign, um, how can they get involved? And also tell us a bit about the manifesto launch which is happening next friday 
Yeah, look, next Friday night, uh, the 23rd of August. Brunswick, oh, 24th, I think. 24th, 24th August, that's yeah. right. <laughs> very good. Um, 6.30, Brunswick Town Hall. Oh, you got, you're so way ahead of me. Um, yeah, we've got the mother of all meetings. It's going to be a magnificent thing. I think somebody said that the Communist Manifesto is 16,000 words, and this manifesto is 20-odd thousand words. But we've written a manifesto, a, 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 a detailed policy, an explanation of our policies um, for ordinary people here in Victoria – which will be launching um, at Brunswick Town Hall next Friday at 6.30. Um, it's going to be great. I encourage everybody to come down there. And um, other re- ways you can sort of get involved, there's a website and a Facebook page, I resume? Yeah, there's, there's exactly that. We've got an office at Trades Hall that you, anyone who's in the area, anyone during the week can just pop in and, and, and I'm based there. They can come and say hello. And uh, we've got 11 branches. Um, we're door knocking. We're running stalls. We're sticking up posters. Um, we're handing out leaflets, we're letterboxing. There's a million and one things to, you can do. But if there's only one thing you can do, if you're, for example, say you're a retired person or you're, you're a little bit maybe sick or you've got ma- ma- many, many commitments, I would say one thing. On November the 24th, which is the election day, we've got to staff 170 polling booths. We've only, we need about 1,100 people. That would be great if you could help us on that day. Very important. And that's going to be on November the 24th. On oh, just a quick question as well. With the manifesto text, um, this will obviously be available online after the launch. Is that right? That's correct. We're going to be selling it. I think it's $5 on the night, but you can get an um, uh, electronic version online after next Friday. Great. All right. Thank you very much, um, Steve. Thanks for your time, Steve. Thanks yeah. for the invitation. Yeah. All right. Um, just go play a Quick, um, so you're just listening to Stephen Jolly, um, lead Victorian socialist candidate. Um, we'll just go play a quick announcement and then we might move on to wrap up the show. All right, um, we're coming into the end. Well, not to the end. We have five minutes left. Um, actually, probably what I, how we'll close up this is uh, I'd like to thank all our guests, um, Nick McKillen and Stephen Jolly, for being our program um, this week. Like yeah, to some, f- some fantastic insights in a lot of issues there. And I'd like to thank our listeners. Um, just one thing. One announcement I kind of forgot to mention um, is uh, next week from Monday to Friday, um, Melbourne University, um, organised by the Environmental Collective and the Environmental Office, are going to be um, organising climate action kind of week or radical environment week. And so um, from Monday to Friday, there'll be different kind of things happening. There'll be stores on the Monday in, at Melbourne University and then on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday there'll be kind of workshops and sessions on different um, issues. In fact, I'm actually doing a workshop on eco-socialism um, and there's going to be one on the plastic um, straw ban and sort of the controversy around that. Um, and so they, uh, that'll be happening if you're a student at the University of Melbourne. Um, I definitely encourage you to check it out because there'll be a lot of interesting stuff um, happening there. Um, and yeah, um, I might just, I think we can probably, um, I'll play, or yeah, I think we're pretty much running out of time. So I'll just play, play, uh, the outro of our program and, um, say, thank you everyone. Have a great weekend and tune in for beyond, beyond zero admissions. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday morning breakfast with green left radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1800 206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. 
repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. start sometime.